Last week we started chapter 12 of the book of Matthew as we've been making our way through the book of Matthew on Sundays, just going systematically, uh, verse by verse, uh, chapter by chapter through the book of Matthew. We looked at the first 13 verses, and so today we're going to pick up where we left off at verse 14. Um, Recall that the opening of the chapter detailed for us uh, two instances of Jesus and his disciples being confronted by the Pharisees regarding their oral tradition about the Sabbath. Okay? Uh, if you remember, if you were here with us last week, we, we took a bit of time uh, looking into what the Sabbath was intended to be and what it had become. Uh, thanks in part to the legalistic approach uh, of the scribes and the Pharisees in their interpretation of the law. They had made the the Sabbath into a day of rules and regulations instead of a day of rest and worship. They did this based upon their uh, interpretation, as I said, of the Mosaic Law. And specifically, they really focused in on really what constituted work. Um, The law stated that there was no work was to be done on the Sabbath. It was to be a day of rest. But in order to ensure... That, that people didn't do any work. They sought out to define exactly what that work, what work was. And, and in doing so, they made up a ton of, uh, you guys recall last week, just silly, complicated rules um, that, that really didn't, did more to hinder rest than to encourage it. Okay? So in verses 9 through 13, we saw the Pharisees, they try, were trying to trap Jesus into breaking their interpretation of the Sabbath by healing a man with a withered hand. Uh, And Jesus explained to the Pharisees how it was lawful to do good on the Sabbath. And he healed the man. And we pick up today at the response of the Pharisees to what Jesus has just done in healing this man with the withered hand. And so we're going to pick up there in verse 14. Will you stand as we read this morning's portion of Scripture just to honor God and His Word? We're going to read uh, verse 14 of chapter 12. And we're going to get... Uh, I'm going to read through 21, but today I plan to get through verse 32. So just to start us off, we'll get to 21. Matthew chapter 12, verse 14 says this. Then the Pharisees went out and plotted against him, being Jesus, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory. Verse 21, and in his name Gentiles will trust. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and just the privilege that we have to gather together uh, to worship you, Lord, uh, to sing praise unto you, to spend time in your word and to allow it to mold and shape us into the image of your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we do thank you that you're here with us. We pray that your presence would continue to remain with us as we go through your word. May we make application to our lives, and may we be encouraged and strengthened in our walk together. Lord, we 
thank you for all that you've done in our lives and all that you're doing and all that you have planned for us. And we trust in that plan and we thank you for it. We pray that as we gather here this morning, Lord, that we would continue in that plan. And so, Lord, lead and guide us. Direct our steps. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In our opening verse, verse 14, we see the the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' compassionate healing upon the man with the withered hand. The Pharisees, they, they left the synagogue and they plotted against Jesus. That word plotted, it, it means to, to take or receive counsel. And, and the idea here is that they, they held a meeting of, of sorts to discuss different ways and different means and how to respond to what was going on before them, how to respond to what Jesus is doing. And so they met together, they plotted together. And I often, as I often say, I like to imagine myself in the situation and in the scripture. And I, I imagine the situation, I try to imagine the circumstances. Okay? Jesus has, has been around for a while now, and he's been teaching and preaching in the synagogues. He's done so with power and with authority that's not been seen or heard by, by any of those who have been in attendance at these uh, times when he's been in the synagogue teaching. Not only has he been teaching and preaching with authority, he's also been able to perform a number of miracles, healings uh, upon people from sicknesses, uh, demon possession, um, physical dis- uh, disabilities. And, and he's able to just do these things. And people from all over have experienced the healing touch of Christ upon their life. And, and now, it, it, he takes it even further. He's actually performing such healings at the synagogues. Okay? A lot of times before, it was kind of out and about. He would be traveling. And, but now it's on the synagogues. And, and here, he's actually done it even on the Sabbath uh, which caused some stirring, some problems for the Pharisees. And, and after consulting with one another, uh, and we don't know for how long that they consulted, uh, and if there were any other propositions that were you know, thrown out there or ideas, they come to the conclusion that the best thing for them to do was to destroy him. And, and that word destroy, you know, it, it means what it means. Okay, it means destroy him. Okay, some people you know, may think, oh, just to you know, make him stop doing his public ministry. We just want to stop him and maybe mar his character and, and just kind of put him to the side. No, they wanted to, to destroy him. They wanted to, to kill him. Okay? They, after seeking counsel, these religious leaders said the best option for us is that we have him killed. And it, it is just, uh, it amazes me, really, to think that uh, this was the outcome of their counsel. Okay? They have a man here that obviously has the power to heal. Okay? And, and he knows the Word of God. He teaches the Word of God with clarity and power. And yet, they will not consider the option of learning from him or, or listening to him. These people that that got so bent out of shape because he was compassionate towards someone and healed them on the Sabbath, they're willing to go to the extremes of, we're going to kill him. Let's plot to kill him. 
and yet they don't see the, the hypocrisy in such thinking. That they want to convict this man because he helped someone, but broke their tradition, and yet, you know, you guys know the... Maybe you don't know all the Ten Commandments by heart, but we know thou shalt not murder, right? That's one of the commandments. Most people know that one. And they're, they're plotting and planning to, to do such. These Pharisees, they represent those that are, that are so set in their ways and they're so prideful that they cannot even begin to acknowledge something that goes against their own way of thinking. Even if it's as obvious as, the, uh, as we say, the plain as the nose on your face. Okay? It can be completely obvious. Uh, they are just too stubborn and too set in their way that they cannot even fathom the option to actually listen to or to accept Jesus Christ and his teachings. You know, I believe most of you, and I hope most of you, I trust most of you here today are, are believers in the Lord. Uh, so you've come to this realization yourself okay, that uh, to, to follow and to trust in Christ. You know, but this type of problem still exists today. You know, there are, there are those that, that no matter what okay, you do, no matter what you say, no matter what sort of proof or evidence that's placed before them, they simply will not accept the truth of Jesus Christ. They will not accept Christ into their life. And, and we must realize that, you know, we cannot persuade, we, we cannot convince someone to come to Christ. The Holy Spirit does that work. Okay? And, and for some, the Holy Spirit is still working on them and they're not ready to surrender. And so, we have a responsibility still yet though. Even though it's the Holy Spirit's job to convict people of their sins, we still have a responsibility. That doesn't mean that we don't continue to try. And so as the Spirit leads and guides us, we must be obedient to share the wonderful truth of Christ and trust that the Spirit will come alongside in working to, to draw that person unto Christ. And so we see, even though people can be so stubborn, and even though people can be like, it doesn't matter what kind of evidence you put before them or what kind of truths are there, we need to, they will not accept it. But we still need to be obedient to share the gospel and trust in the Spirit's power to draw those people to Christ. We get to partner together with the Spirit. And so I want to encourage you to do so this morning. These Pharisees, they were hit with all sorts of evidence. But they weren't yet ready to accept Christ. Okay, this evidence is, is piling up, though, and we're going to see as we continue in the text this morning, the p- evidence continues to pile up against them and against their denial of Christ. Let's read verses 15 through 21. It says, But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew from there, and great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. Yet he warned them not to make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will declare justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and smoking flax he will not quench, till he sends forth justice to victory, and in his name, in his name Gentiles will trust. Jesus, knowing of, of their plans and their desires, he withdrew from the Pharisees. And as he did so, a great multitude of people followed him and he healed them. And, and interestingly, Jesus, he didn't want people to tell others about the healings that he had performed. 
Uh, and we're told that the, the reason that he did so was that he could fulfill the prophecies that were spoken of by the prophet Isaiah. Okay? And so we see here that Jesus is he's ever mindful of the big picture. Okay? He, he knows that there is a plan in place and has come to fulfill all the scriptures that are spoken of him and spoken of his coming. And so he realizes there's a timetable. There's a divine timetable and it's, it's not time okay, for me to be known and for me to have this attention drawn towards me. As things begin to escalate between the Pharisees and himself, he, he knowing that this time had not yet come, he needed to step away. Although I, I do want to point out something here. We do see something else in here. It, and it's really the compassion of Christ. Okay? We see the compassion of Christ. Even though he was on a divine timetable time and he needed to, to stay on mission, he still took the time to care for those who were in need. He realized he needed to step away because the altercation with the Pharisees, it, it still needed to, to build more. Okay? It still needed to be heated up and ultimately happen upon the exact timing that God had laid out. And so he stepped away, but as people followed him, he still had a heart for them. He still had compassion upon them. And he healed them, all that came out to, to, to see him and to be with him. The, the scriptures that Matthew quotes here in, the, uh, in verses 18 through 21, they come from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1 through 4. And, and the prophet Isaiah, he penned these words as a description of the Messiah that was to come. Okay? The anointed one, uh, that word Messiah means. Okay? And so we, I want to look, just briefly go through this quickly, and look at the description of the Messiah, and, and compare it to our understanding of who Christ is. And so looking at this, it starts off in verse 18. It says, Behold my servant. The Messiah would come first and foremost, as a servant. Jesus Christ, he, he laid aside his majesty in order to serve humanity. His death is the supreme example of his servanthood as he fulfilled the will of God the Father. Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so we see this is description of the Messiah. It continues, Whom I have chosen. God, God chose to work in and through the Messiah. Well, similarly, God chose Jesus to be the Messiah. And He chose Him before life even began here on earth. That was the plan. 1 Peter 1, verse 20 says, He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. God's plan has been in place before, create, before He even created it. And, and the Messiah was going to come, but it, it had to come in the right time. And then in the right place. And, and everything had to line up. And so we see here that Jesus was, was chosen by God to, to come. It says, My beloved, the Messiah, He was to be the recipient of a, of a special kind of love of God. From God, Jesus was shown this type of love uh, and was referred to this title by God the Father on, on two separate occasions, this title, Beloved. Okay. Once was after he was baptized. 
If you guys will recall, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing there in the Jordan, and Jesus came out to him, and he baptized him. And when that happened, God announced from heaven, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Matthew chapter 3, verse 17. And a second time, he, God spoke and declared that Jesus was his beloved in Matthew chapter 17, verse 5. On the Mount of Transfiguration, God again, audibly, he declared, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. And he adds, Hear him. The Messiah that was to come was to be beloved, and, and we see that Jesus was beloved. The Messiah was to be well-pleasing. Jesus, as we just read, he was well-pleasing to the Father. He said, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well-pleased. And so we see, absolutely, Jesus fits this description. The Messiah was also to be filled with the Spirit of God. When Jesus was baptized, John the Baptist, he had this to say. He witnessed something. He had this to say when Jesus was baptized. He said, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove. And he remained upon him. I did not know him, but he, would, who, who, he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. And so Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God. There, uh, When he was baptized, the Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove, it's actually where we get our logo, uh, the Calvary Chapel dove. It's supposed to be representative of the Spirit coming down that descended upon and remained with Jesus. And so we see Jesus fits this description. Remember, Matthew's point in writing his gospel account is he wants, he's writing to Jews. And he's wanting to show them as much as possible how the Old Testament scriptures were fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so he's going through and he's saying, hey, this is what the Messiah was to be. And let's see how Jesus lines up with this. The Messiah, uh, excuse me. Um, oh, one other thing. Christ, he, he, Christ himself even indicated that it was the Spirit's power in his life that allowed him to do the ministry that the Lord had anointed him to do. In Luke chapter 4, verse 18, he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because He has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, and set all at, to set at liberty those who are oppressed. And so Jesus Himself said, It's the Spirit that's upon me that gives me the power to do these things. What else does it say about the Messiah here in Isaiah's prophet, uh, prophecy? says that the Messiah was to be sent to the Gentiles as well. Christ was sent really to save the whole world, both Jews and Gentiles. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. Christ was sent to the entire world of Gentiles. Verse 19 speaks of how the Messiah will not quarrel nor cry out, nor will anyone hear His voice in the streets. 
You know, that, that's a picture of, of Christ. Jesus, he wasn't about fighting with others or gathering attention to himself. We already read to, just today how, and noted, even in previous studies, of how Jesus was quite the opposite. He, he frequently asked people not to say things about him. And he often withdrew from those who desired to quarrel with him. Or if there was things were heating up, he would step aside and, and uh, get away. He wasn't there to start fights. doesn't mean he wasn't passionate in some of the things he did. And there was times where he stood up. But oftentimes we see him escape out of the crowd and, and step aside. A bruised reed he will not break. It shows how the Messiah will be gentle. We just saw in our study of chapter 11 of the book of Matthew how Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. It says that in a smoking flax he will not quench. I had to actually look up what that meant. Flax was most often used as a strip of linen that would be used for the wick of a candle or a lamp. And so you would have this flax a smoking flax would be then picture for us just a, a light that's smoking dangerously close to being put out. This idea that you know the candle's already burned down to the wick, is not much left, it starts to smoke and it's about to go out. And he says that the Messiah would not quench that, that he would not put out such a fire. And the picture I believe that's portrayed here is that of the Messiah that would not be willing to, to put out even the smallest flicker of light. Okay? And we see this, this heart in Jesus as he would minister to his disciples and encourage them in their faith and take just, he said, if you just got a little bit of faith, you just need a little bit. And you can say to this mountain, you know, uh, cast into the sea, you, you just need this little bit. And he'd encourage just that little bit. And we, so we see that this is a portrayal here, a picture of, of Christ. Verse 20 tells us of how there's a time when justice will be sent forth and victory will be had. And that victory was won upon the cross. God's justice was satisfied when Christ paid the penalty for our sins in full. And lastly, it states in verse 21 that in his name, Gentiles will trust. And that word Gentile, it's interesting. It's the Greek word ethnos. It's where we get our word like ethnicity or it's ethnic. Uh, and it's written in the plural form to indicate the races of the world. And, and so we see that the Messiah, that in his name, the races of the world will trust. And the races of this world trust in Jesus Christ. We see that clearly in the life and death of Christ and how his gospel message has been proclaimed throughout the world. What an incredibly accurate description of who Jesus Christ is and what He came to do. And as I look over this list of qualities and attributes of the Messiah, of Jesus Christ, I can't help but think of God's desire for us as well. You know, the Scriptures talk about you know, lots of things that God wants to do in our lives, but one of the goals that God has for our lives is that we would become like the Son. That, that we would be conformed into the image of Jesus Christ. And, and so, as I look at this list of qualities and attributes that, that clearly and beautifully picture the ministry of the Messiah and the ministry of Jesus Christ, I, I can't help but think of us, ourselves and, and what the Lord desires for us. Do you realize that we are chosen as well? And we are beloved 
God desires that we would be servants and that we would be well-pleasing to the Father. That, that we would be spirit-filled. Okay? That we would be sent out to people to, to represent Him. And that we would be gentle. That we would be encouraging. And that we would be victorious in this life by trusting in Christ's name. And so as we look at that and we say, yeah, it's a beautiful picture of the Messiah, but let me tell you, it's also a beautiful picture of what Christ wants to do in your life as well. As He desires to mold and shape us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. We need to allow the Lord to do that work in our hearts and, and, and lives to make us and mold us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so moving on, we're seeing here uh, yet another confrontation in verses 22 through 30. We're going to go through this slowly, verse by verse, kind of, and make some applications and point out some things here as things are going to kind of come to a head here. And um, let's, let's just read. Verse 22 says, Then one was brought to him who was demon-possessed, blind and mute, and he healed him so that the blind and mute man both spoke and saw. And all the multitudes were amazed and said, could this be the son of David? A, a demon-possessed man that was also blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he was able to heal him and, and so that he could both speak and see again. And after seeing this happen, we see a second sort of gathering. Remember back in verse 14, after the healing of the man with the withered hand, there was a gathering it was the Pharisees. They gathered together and they counseled with one another and they were plotting together, deciding what they were going to do based upon the information, based upon the evidence that was before them and how they were going to interpret what Jesus was doing and what they would do about it. Here we see another group forming. Okay? The multitudes. And they've gathered their evidence as well and they are conferring amongst each other as well and they too are discussing their own opinions on who Jesus is and how they should respond to Him. And it's, it's interesting, it's amazing, it's a little bit of a head-scratcher as well, that the multitudes come up with a completely different conclusion than that of the Pharisees. Okay? The crowd talked among themselves and they asked, could this be the son of David? You know, that, that title, that, that phrase, the Son of David, it was a clear reference to the Messiah that was to come from the line of David. And so they're talking and they're looking at the evidence and they're saying, could this be the Messiah? Could, could he be the one? And the conclusion that they come to stands as an indictment against the Pharisees. For even the multitudes of, of lay people were able to rightly discern the signs and wonders that accompanied Jesus Christ as being that of the Messiah. And the Pharisees, they were supposed to be the religious elite. They were supposed to be the ones that were especially ordained to, to rightly divide the word and, and lead people in their understanding of the ways of the Lord. And yet they will not accept what was so obvious to even the multitudes of lay people that were witness to Jesus' ministry. It's a head-scratcher how they could be so blind to it and put off by it and would not accept it. But yet the lay people, those who weren't trained in the Scriptures and didn't, you know, they were worshipers. It would seem that the nation itself was worshipers of, of God, but 
they were able to look at it and say, man, evidence seems to be pointing to a certain conclusion, and yet the Pharisees, nope, it's not that. Let's continue. Verse 24, it says, Now when the Pharisees heard it, they said, This fellow does not cast out demons except by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. <laughs> when the Pharisees, they, they heard the multitude suggesting and questioning whether or not Jesus could be the Messiah, that idea, that son of David, they quickly come up with an excuse and, and accuse Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub. The, the ruler of demons. Okay? Now that name Beelzebub was in common use among the Jews in Christ's day as a title and a reference to Satan as the prince of demons. You know, some look at that and say, oh, there was an Old Testament God named Beelzebub in the Philistines. It's not referring to that guy. Um, it, it's referring to, to Satan. We know this because Jesus, when he gives his rebuttal, he, he says Satan. Uh, So we know that this is a clear reference to Satan. And so their suggestion is that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. The Pharisees, they're yet again faced with an opportunity to respond to Christ. And instead of honestly looking at the evidence before them, they try and discredit Jesus' power by saying his power comes from Satan. You know, the accusation is a reach. And and it's one that was definitely not well thought out. Uh, It seems as though the Pharisees, they are getting desperate. And and they are beginning to throw out any sort of idea. No matter how ridiculous or how absurd that can be used to attack Jesus or to try and justify their stance against him. Have you ever known anyone like that before? Maybe someone that you've been witnessing to. Or, or maybe even a, a family member you've been praying for. God's been showing up big time in their life. And you've been able to show them so much evidence of Christ's love and Christ's plan for their life. And yet they just won't surrender. Okay? They'll make up any sort of excuse. Things that don't even make sense just to justify their position against Christ. My encouragement to you is this. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Continue to share. Continue to pray. Continue to water the seed that has been planted. And you never know when the Spirit of God will break through in that individual's life. And so we continue. These Pharisees, though, uh, they come up with a pretty lame excuse. And Jesus here is going to easily tear down their argument based upon just some simple logic and some of their own experience. And so Jesus is going to give three rebuttals to their accusation. Okay? Each one will contain a statement and a question that clearly points to only one undeniable truth. And we'll see what that is. So let's look at the first one in verses 25 and 26, the first rebuttal of Jesus. He says, But Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and every city or house divided against itself will not stand. If Satan cast out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? Jesus first addressed this accusation by explaining how it was just illogical. It's illogical for him to cast out demons by the power or the prince of demons, Satan. A kingdom divided against itself will eventually be brought to desolation. It'd be laid to waste. 
And Jesus references Satan's kingdom of darkness and states an obvious problem with that accusation. He said, if Satan empowers me to cast out his people, demons, how will his kingdom survive? And we know that Satan wants his kingdom to survive, right? We know he's, try- he want- he's playing for keeps, and he's trying to win, even though he knows he's going to lose. But he's going to take as many as he can with him. And so he says, how is that going to work? I mean, think that one through. Satan's going to empower people to beat himself? No, that doesn't make sense. Okay? And, and so with, even with this very first rebuttal, Jesus is able to show that clearly he's not empowered by Satan. Satan's not going to empower someone to defeat himself. Okay? That's a no-brainer. But continue, continuing, Jesus gives a second rebuttal in verses 27 and 28. And he says, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they shall be your judges. But... If I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. Verses 27 and 28, Jesus' second rebuttal, he confronts their, their own beliefs about the ability of casting out demons in general. He just says, okay, you say that I cast out demons by the power of Satan. If that's true, okay, who do your people cast out demons by? If the power to cast out demons comes from Satan, then who do your people cast out demons by? And it's interesting, in the book of Acts, chapter 19, we're told of some itinerant Jewish exorcists are mentioned in Acts chapter 19. And we're not going to go into the details of Acts 19 today. But I bring it up just to show that evidently in that day that there were those who were identified as exorcists. People that were believed to have the ability to cast out demonic forces. And so Jesus referred to some of these exorcists, or so-called exorcists, and he asked the question, If I'm able to cast out demons only by the power of Satan, then by whom do your sons cast them out? That word sons, it doesn't necessarily mean offspring like my son Caleb and Jonah and Ethan and Boaz. Not necessarily sons like that. That word sons, uh, it, it means pupil or disciple or follower or a spiritual child of someone. And so basically Jesus was saying, if demons are only cast out by Satan then are, are you saying that your very own disciples and followers cast out demons by that same power? And he kind of tricks them and kind of catches them, right? And obviously the Pharisees, they're not going to indict their own followers and their own pupils as people that are using the power of Satan to cast out demons. And so the only obvious and clear answer that the Pharisees would give to Jesus' question would be that their followers were able to cast out demons with the help of God and His Spirit, and they would try and align them with God. And so Jesus then states, if the power to cast out demons then comes from God, well, you're forced to admit that the Spirit of God and His kingdom have come upon you. Because there was no doubting, and there was no questioning that this fa- the fact that this man was healed and freed from demonic possession. So he says, hey, if you say that it happens by God's power, you have to admit, this guy just got demon, freed from demon possession. And so God is at work right now. Okay? And so, because of that, Jesus now comes to his third and final one to show how they all tie together here. In verse 29, he says, 
Or how can one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the stronger man? And then he will plunder his house. The answer to the question of, of how can any, one enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man, the answer to the question is he can't. You can't go into someone's house, a strong man, someone who's able to defend his house, and plunder his house without first binding him. Okay? That, they'll, if you didn't, then they would put a stop to it. You know, in whatever means that this strong man did. Put a thumping on you or something, I don't know. But you'd first have to bind the strong man. You can't enter into the strong man's house, plunder his goods, unless you first bind that strong man. And the illustration here uh, is, uh, uh, let's identify the people. The illustration pictures Satan as the strong man, okay, and his house as his kingdom, and Satan's goods are the works of his demons, and the plunderer is... Well, we won't say it's Jesus. Let's just say, for since, because he's building this case, that it's someone stronger than Satan. Okay? Someone has to be stronger than the strong man in order to bind him. And so this is the point that Jesus is making in his third rebuttal, that in order to cast out demons, someone must have access to strength, strength that is greater than Satan's. Who is, who's more powerful than Satan? Oh, they all knew that. The answer to that one too. It was God. God's more powerful than Satan. And, and so Jesus' assertion is that those that cast out demons must have access to God's power. In this third rebuttal. And so Jesus, in these three rebuttals, he shows that, first, it's illogical to believe that Satan cast out Satan. Yeah, that doesn't make any sense. Second, the ability to cast out demons, it, you recognize and believe that it comes from God. And thirdly, the one who's able to cast out demons has access to God's power. Okay? All three of these rebuttals lead to the obvious conclusion that Jesus indeed cast out demons and that he did so by the Spirit of God and through God's power. Jesus, he, he wraps up his response, this rebuttal to the Pharisees' accusation with a very pointed statement here in verse 30. Okay? Verse 30, he says, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters abroad. Jesus, he is drawing a line in the sand here to the Pharisees. He, he's done a, a thorough job of explaining to them that the only logical conclusion to come to is that Jesus, that He is from God and has been given the power of God to cast out demons. The multitudes see it. The evidence is vast and it's time to make a decision. What's your decision? Who do you say that I am? And isn't, isn't that what it, this is all about? Okay. Who do you acknowledge Christ to be? Is He the Messiah or not? Yes or no? You know, Jesus does not leave any room for neutrality. You're either with me or against me. You're either gathering 
or scattering. You know, some people think that they can, they can remain neutral on the topic of Jesus. And that simply is not the case. If you have not committed your life to Him, and you have not acknowledged Him as your Lord and Savior, then you are against Him. Some, some think that they have, well, the prerogative or the choice or the right to, to make up their mind later. That's not true. No decision on Christ is a decision... Let me start it over. No decision on Christ is a decision that says, No, you're not who you say you are. When you don't make a decision, that's a decision that says, No, I do not agree with you. And so a no decision, no decision is a no decision. It's impossible to be undecided. It is impossible to be undecided when it comes to Christ. If you're not with Him, you are against Him. And He draws a very clear line in the, in the sand for the Pharisees here. The evidence is before them, and He's saying, look, you guys are starting to throw out some crazy ideas here. You, you think that I cast out Satan by Satan, and he, and he just you know, shows how illogical that was. And He basically says, look, it's time to make a decision here. It's time to decide. You're either with me or you're not. In these next two verses, Jesus is going to give here what I believe to be a very stern warning to the Pharisees in regards to their line of thinking and the decisions that they're making. It's a portion of Scripture that a lot of people have talked about. It's a portion of Scripture that a lot of people have debated over. It's a portion of Scripture that I hope to bring clarity to. And I do not assume or, or think that I probably am going to say something that everyone here agrees with, but I hope and pray that you give me the opportunity to explain what is before us. In verse 31 and 32, Jesus is continuing his discussion and he lays and speaks unto the Pharisees and he says there to the group who is before them, verse 31, Therefore, therefore I say to you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man it will be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it will not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. The blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is a very serious subject matter. One that I want to be very careful to try and explain here this morning. Jesus says that every sin will be forgiven men, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven men. Okay. Here, Jesus identifies for us the one and only sin that is unforgivable, unpardonable, the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think because... Salvation is at stake. It's very important that we understand what this one sin is and that we do not commit it. Okay? And so I want to try and explain what I believe the Scriptures teach us what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. 
So what is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? It is debatable, as I mentioned. A lot of people have different thoughts on this. Okay? If you go Google it, you're going to get lots of different stuff. Okay? I would suggest not doing that, probably. Okay? Some suggest that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is solely attributing the work and power of God to Satan based upon the immediate context of when Jesus spoke of this sin. That blasphemy of the Holy Spirit means explicitly and only that attributing the work and power of God to Satan. That is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This line of thinking would have us to believe that if we attribute anything God did in the power of the Spirit to demonic activities, that we have committed the unpardonable sin. Okay? If we say, for example, if we say that someone speaking in tongues is not of the Holy Spirit, but of a different spirit, referencing a possibility of demonic spirit, but that person really was indeed powered by the Holy Spirit to speak in tongues, then that would be an example of committing the unforgivable sin, according to this definition. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, attributing the power of God to demonic forces. And so if we saw something like that and said, that's demonic, then you would be committing the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You would be unforgivable from that sin. Similarly, similarly, if we speak against a work of God in a church or about an individual pastor or teacher and say that they are doing demonic things, but in reality they are being powered by the Spirit of God, we would have committed the unforgivable sin based upon that interpretation of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. I do not believe that this is the proper interpretation of what blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is at all. Because if it were, I mean, we'll explain why, but if it were, I I would not be saved. I would be destined to hell. The reason I say that I would not be saved and that I would be destined to hell is because I grew up in a secular household. And I grew up in a home that ridiculed people in the church and spoke badly about people in the church. And we did say, you know, that's weird, wacky stuff. That's, you know, freaky stuff. And we would attribute that things to all sorts of crazy stuff. And so before I came to know the Lord, I used to do that. And so before even given the opportunity of being presented the knowledge of Christ and be able to respond to that, I would have already committed the unpardonable sin. I looked at what was happening in the church. I said, that is... That's, you know, weird spirit stuff. That's not of God. I don't even believe in that. That would be me saying that that work of God was of of Satan, of demonic uh, spirit and weird stuff. And and I would stand condemned of having committed this sin. And, And I do not believe that to be so. If the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not solely attributing the works of God to Satan, then what is it then? I believe that we need to not only understand the immediate context here, but that we also need to understand the overarching context of what is going on 
to better understand what the sin of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit indeed is. Jesus did not say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit was attributing the works of God to Satan. He simply said that speaking against the Holy Spirit would not be forgiven a person. That speaking against the Holy Spirit, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. If blasphemy is something that is done against the Holy Spirit, it's, it's done in opposition to Him. To better understand the opposition of the Holy Spirit, we must first understand what the Holy Spirit does and what the ministry of the Holy Spirit is. If we're going to oppose it, if we're going to come against the Holy Spirit, we have to realize what He came to do in the first place. The Scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit has two main functions in the life of the non-believer. Two main functions. In John chapter 15, verse 26, Jesus was speaking, and He tells us that when the Holy Spirit comes, He will testify of Me, referring to Himself, Jesus. The Holy Spirit will testify of Jesus. And as Jesus continued to speak about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, He said in John chapter 16, verse 8, that the Spirit will convict the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And so we see that the Holy Spirit has a twofold ministry that Jesus spoke of. He was going to come and testify of Jesus, and He was going to come and convict the world. To testify and to convict. Testifying means to bear witness to the truth. In this instance of the Holy Spirit, He came to bear witness to the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Conviction is is showing us to be in the wrong. Conviction is when the Holy Spirit shows us that we've committed sin, that we're in the wrong. He's come to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so we see the two ministries of the Holy Spirit, they really work together. The Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and of righteousness and of judgment, showing us that we are in the wrong. Then He testifies of Jesus and bears witness to the truth of who Jesus is, that He is the beloved Son of God, chosen to be the propitiation for our sin. The goal in the ministry of the Holy Spirit, the goal is for us to recognize this truth, to come to the realization of our need for a Savior. And that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit comes along the side the life of an individual and He shows us that we're sinful. And then He shows us that there's only one way to deal with that sin and it's through Jesus Christ. Since blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is something that's done against Him in opposition of Him, it makes sense that it would be tied to doing something against or in opposition of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And really, if you think of the overarching context of what we've been reading thus far in the book of Matthew, and specifically within this chapter, we see that that's what the Scriptures are talking about. The Pharisees' opposition and denial of the Spirit's testimony of Christ. The Holy Spirit has empowered Jesus to perform miracles, all of which are means and ways for the Holy Spirit to bring witness to the truth 
of Jesus' claims and who he was. He was empowered to do those things that they might be a, a, a witness and an and authentication of God's power in the life of Jesus. The Pharisees, they are denying the work of the Holy Spirit, testifying of Jesus by claiming that the Holy Spirit is not working in Jesus, but it, rather it was Satan. But the evidence that the Spirit has laid out clearly testifies to the truth of who Jesus is. The Pharisees are in danger of committing the unpardonable sin, speaking against the Spirit, because they are speaking against the Spirit's testimony of who Jesus is. It's as if they are calling the Holy Spirit a liar or or a false witness, because they will not believe His testimony of who Christ is. A mountain of evidence is laid before them, but they continue to reject it. They continue to fight against it and oppose it. And if they continue in their rejection of the Spirit's testimony of Christ, they will indeed commit the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I believe to commit the unpardonable sin is to ultimately deny the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit in one's life. The Pharisees were denying the work and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And in so doing, they were coming close to, if not actually already committing, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And some have asked about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and if people can commit that sin today. The answer to the question is yes. This sin can still be committed today. If someone continually refuses the work of the Holy Spirit in their heart, revealing Jesus Christ to them and reproving them of their sin, then there will be no forgiveness for that person. You see, God said that there's only one way. There's only one way to have your sins forgiven. And that is through Jesus Christ. It's the only way that our sins can be forgiven. Conversely, there's only one way not to have your sins forgiven, and that is through the rejection of Jesus Christ and what He's done for you. And some may say, well, I haven't rejected Christ. I'm, I'm, I'm just not ready to surrender to Him. Remember what verse 30 said? Verse 30 said, Jesus said, if you're not with me, you're against me. A very clear line in the sand. Yes, He is the Messiah. Yes, He is the Lord and Savior. And that's the only way to be forgiven of your sins? Or, no, he's not. And you have no means of being forgiven at all. Because there's no other way to be forgiven. If you've never surrendered your life to him, it means that you've rejected him. You've rejected the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that was showing you your need for a Savior. And by denying the Spirit's testimony and opposing Him, you end up committing the unpardonable sin. There would be no forgiveness for you. For the only way to be forgiven is through Jesus Christ, and you've rejected Him. And so, yes, that sin can be committed today. I do not believe that it can be committed by a believer. Because you've already received that testimony of Christ in your life. And so if you're a believer here today and you're walking with the Lord and you've confessed your sins unto the Lord, then I would say, no, you cannot commit that sin. But for those who do not know the Lord, 
And they reject the ministry of the Holy Spirit and continue to reject it. And their life comes to an end without ever receiving and following that ministry and answering that ministry, that testimony of the Spirit's call in one's life. They will have committed blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It will be unforgivable. That sin will be held against them. The love and grace of God is abundant though. And it's because of that love that He sent His Son to us. And that He sent the Holy Spirit to us. So that the Spirit can show us our need for Christ. And our need for forgiveness. And so I hope and pray that if there's anyone here that is yet to acknowledge the truth of who Jesus is, that they would do so today. That you would be with Christ and not against Him. Because you're either one or the either. You're either for Him or you're against Him. You're with Him or you're against Him. You're either gathering or you're scattering. There's no neutrality. So I hope and pray if there's anyone here this morning that has not made that decision, that you would make it today. If you don't know what that means, I'd invite you to come up and talk with me and I'd love to explain what it means to surrender your life to the Lord. I know a lot of you here are walking with the Lord. I want to encourage you as we look at today's portion of Scripture to continue to reach out to those who are hard-hearted, to those who have rejected the mountain of evidence that's before them and continue to allow the Holy Spirit to work in inside, in and through you to water those seeds of peoples in your life that you might help to usher in that, that person into the uh, kingdom of heaven, into the kingdom of God. And so, also, if there's any here that are fearful, I know some people are, I, I thought I maybe committed that sin. I want to tell you right now, if you are a Christian, if you have given your life to the Lord, you cannot commit that sin. You, that sin, you've already responded to that testimony of Christ. So, uh, I want to encourage you to have hope and strength in that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this morning and uh, just the portion that's before us. And I know that um, different people come up with, have different backgrounds. But Lord, I believe that that's what, this is what your scriptures teach us. I believe that, Lord, uh, the ministry of your Holy Spirit is to convict us and to testify of your Son, Jesus Christ. And when we, we don't listen to that, when we say, Holy Spirit, you're a liar. Holy Spirit, you're false. That's not true. Lord, we, we are in danger of committing that, that unpardonable sin. Lord, I pray that everyone here, everyone here, would have the confidence of knowing that their sins are forgiven thanks to the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you for the beautiful picture of who the Messiah is and how he came and he, he is beloved and he was chosen he was a servant and he was gentle and encouraging and, and Lord how you want us to be those things you want us to have victory by trusting in his name and so Father may we walk with confidence having trust in your son and not in our own works and what he's done for us we thank you for the work of the cross we thank you that he paid it all and that it truly is finished thanks to him lord i pray your blessings would be upon each and every one here this morning lead and guide us as we uh, uh, go our way here this sunday i pray that we continue to meditate and, and and dwell upon all that you have for us i thank you for your word i thank you for your spirit that leads and guides it's in jesus name we pray